Are you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Let's pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Father, I pray that as we spend time studying your word, Lord, that each and every one of us would grow, that we would mature. And Father, I pray that we would have a greater revelation of who you are every time we study your word. Father, I pray that our hearts are open, our minds are open to receive what you would have for us and that your word would accomplish inside of us what you intend it to accomplish. And we give you thanks and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, hallelujah. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Corinthians. And today we're going to do the first half of chapter 12. We're going to make it through the first 10 verses. And uh, man, now I got to buy pizza. How did my phone get turned on? Y'all need to quit texting me, trying to get me in trouble. Hallelujah. Nope, this was actually done on purpose. This was an instructional aid to remind everybody to turn their phone off. <laughs> this wasn't on accident. This, this was on purpose. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. I hope you all learned a valuable lesson. Hallelujah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to continue on to the book of, like I said, 2 Corinthians. And uh, as you remember, um, the the... The main point of this letter has been Paul refuting all these false apostles, these false teachers who are coming in after him, and really they're bringing false teaching. They're bringing a different gospel, and he's leading, they're leading the Corinthians astray. So today, Paul is now going to move on. If you remember uh, the last, last week, uh, last couple weeks, and he's going to continue today, this idea of Paul's going to go ahead and continue on boasting in himself. But it's this, he realizes this boasting is foolishness. And it's craziness, but he's, he's doing it to, to make a point to the Corinthians. And today, he's going to move on to visions and revelations in his foolish boasting. It's funny, it's almost like Paul's got a checklist of all the things that the false apostles are, are uh, boasting about, and he's going down the list and saying, yeah, I can do all these things too. And uh, even though Paul had experienced great visions and revelations, and he's going to briefly mention one today, you're going to see that he actually quickly falls back on boasting in his weaknesses again, instead of boasting on these things that what the false apostles and probably the Corinthians and really all, all of us would think of would be great strengths in his life. He quickly falls back to boasting in his weaknesses instead. The truth is, is even when Paul is making the point clear that it's foolish boasting and he's just trying to make a point, he's still careful not to boast. Yeah, I think it still bothers him. So he always pulls back. Because here's the thing, Paul realizes that it's in his weaknesses that he is really strong. It's in his weaknesses because when we're in our weaknesses, we can't rely on our own strength. Because by definition, we have weakness in those areas. But that's when God can shine. In those areas that you have weakness and God has made you successful, you know it's God. Because you don't have that in your own strength. And then Paul says, Paul boasts in his weaknesses because he knows he, he can't rely on them. He has to rely on God in those circumstances. And, and when he's relying on that strength, he says, I can be content in every, any hardship, any suffering, any persecution, anything that comes my way, I'm content to put up with it because Christ gives me strength and I want to make sure that Christ is glorified. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. He says, If I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So here's where he gets started. We're talking about visions and revelations. And notice that he, he just like he has this, in, this entire letter when he's going through this boasting phase, he points out the foolishness of bo- boasting. 
He wants the Corinthians to really understand that this boasting that he's doing really is foolish. And, and he actually says here, there is nothing to be gained by it. Not only is it unbecoming of an apostle, or a Christian for that matter, to go about boasting of your own accomplishments, there's actually no benefit to doing so. There's certainly no spiritual benefit. Your boasting isn't going to make you higher in a higher standing in God's eyes. The truth is, the only reason we have any standing in God's eyes is because what His Son has done. In our own strength, in our own, we don't measure up. Every single one of us falls short, but because of what Christ has done, we're no longer considered enemies, but we're considered friends. Amen? So we gain nothing in our spiritual health by boasting. And truthfully, you gain nothing in your mental health by boasting either. Because typically, most people boast to try to elevate themselves above somebody else. They're trying to make themselves look better than somebody else. What does that do for you? Really, what it does is it makes other people feel worse, for the most part. So all boasting really does, especially in the case of these false apostles and what they're boasting about, is make them look like fools. They're being foolish. And dangerously, what it does is it puts forth the idea that this is how apostles and maybe even disciples are supposed to live. You know, if, if you're a leader, you're supposed to set the example for the people that are under you. So these people are coming in as apostles. They're saying they're apostles. Yet they're acting in ways that are unbecoming of a Christian. And they're setting a dangerous example. So why is it so dangerous for, for Christians to boast? Why is it so foolish? And it's something that, that I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, but I think it bears repeating that, that, that as Christians, we are foolish and it's dangerous for us to boast. And the primary reason is that when we begin to look inwardly, when we begin to boast about ourselves, it takes our eyes off of God and puts it on ourselves. We begin to somehow give ourselves credit for what God has clearly done in our lives. And the second thing that can be dangerous is it, is it creates a desire inside of us to gather ourselves with a, a group of followers or admirers. It, it creates a, a dangerous precedent where we're trying to somehow get people to follow us. So not only are we following us when we boast, but we're trying to get others to follow us, put their eyes on us, when instead our goal should be to have our eyes on God and to lead other people to put their eyes on God. Amen? And then he goes on, and this is where I said earlier, it's almost like the way he phrases it, he's going on like a checklist of all the things the apostles have been boasting on, right? He says, he says, all right, now I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So I've already covered the other stuff that they're boasting about. Now we're going to talk about visions and revelations because apparently the, the false apostles, this is what they've been boasting about. They're, they're going in and saying, listen, you should listen to me because I had a vision from the Lord. God spoke to me. And they began boasting of these things. And based on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, the Corinthians are very in tune and interested in spiritual gifts and supernatural happenings of these sorts. You remember that when they got a revelation of speaking in tongues and operating in the gifts of the Spirit, they would get together and every single one of them would, would speak in tongues all together, all at the same time. And, and it was causing a commotion. It was causing a problem in the church. 
You know, and Paul says, look, there's some, there's some clear guidelines because God is a God of, of order, not a God of chaos. If you're going to speak in tongues in the church, one, no more than three, and make sure that you have an interpreter. But the, the Corinthians were very interested in the spiritual gifts. And I thank God for the spiritual gifts, but it doesn't mean we don't do them in order. You know, Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you, which means Paul wasn't opposed to speaking in tongues. He just didn't address the church in tongues. Because he said he would rather have five words and a tongue that could be heard and a prophetic gift because it would bless the church than thousands in a tongue that nobody could understand. But it's obvious the Corinthian church were interested in these spiritual gifts. They were interested in the supernatural, God moving supernaturally. So these apostles would come in and begin to boast about all their supernatural experiences with God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this before, but did you notice that the, the devil seems to use different baits for different people? The devil seems to use different temptations. There are things that I'm tempted by that you're not tempted by. But the devil's not going to use things that I'm tempted by to try to tempt you because it wouldn't be effective. But he knew what was effective here. So people came in. The, the devil's able to take advantage of people. Because that's, that's what Paul referred to, these, these false apostles. They were sons of the devil. And he said that they're coming in and they're trying to take advantage. He, they, he knew what the bait to use. And they're they bringing up all these supernatural credentials. They were somehow bragging that because of these things that have happened to us, we've been judged worthy. Or we're better than you guys. But if you think about this, this is a really strange thing to boast about. Because... Getting a vision or a revelation from God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. God will speak to anybody. You remember the high priest at the time was talking about Jesus? And it's obviously that this guy is, is, is not in touch with God or in tune with the scriptures and God to know that Jesus was the Messiah. But he said, hey guys, it's prudent for one man to die for all people. Because he was talking about the other false messiahs that had come through. So this guy is, is, is obviously... Not where he should be with God. He's at least not understanding the scriptures and know Jesus is the Messiah, but God still spoke prophetically through him and said that it would be enough for one man to die for all people. So it turns out that God speaking through you or to you really has little to do with you. It has to do with God wanting to speak to you. So it's kind of a silly thing to boast about because it had nothing to do with you in the first place. So if that's the thing, why is it that now Paul is going to, going to boast in his visions and revelations if nothing can be gained for him? And we have to remember that when Paul is boasting through this whole thing is that, one, the reason he's doing it is because by not doing it, the stakes are just too high. He's, he's retaliating. He's, 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 he's uh, countering what these false apostles are doing. He's having to do this so the Corinthians will hear him because he doesn't want them to get led astray. Instead, he wants to point them back to the truth. They were enamored by the exploits of these super apostles, as Paul referred to them. So they needed something to pull them back in towards the truth. So when Paul is boasting, he's not boasting like these apostles were trying to build themselves up. Paul is just trying to, one, show how foolish they are for boasting and trying to get the Corinthians' eyes back on God. And it's interesting to me that even when Paul boasts, his, his motives are completely different than the motives 
of these apostles. But Paul just wants to point these Corinthians back towards the truth. Amen? And in verse 2, he begins. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So now Paul begins to describe an experience that he had 14 years ago when he was caught up to the third heaven. And I know you guys are saying right now, what do you mean this is, this is Paul? It says he's talking about another man, not Paul. And, but the truth is, is we're going we're gonna to get into this in a second. But the, the reality is, is that all the evidence points that Paul is actually still talking about himself. He's just talking about himself in the third person. It's interesting that this word here, I know a man who was caught up, this word here is actually the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians where we talk about where it describes the rapture. It's being caught up. It's being snatched up. And he says he knows about this man who was snatched up to the third heaven. And he actually, as we go through this, we're going to see he doesn't give a lot of detail about this vision, this revelation. Matter of fact, he does a lot of this. I do not know. God knows. <laughs> he doesn't give a lot of detail about what's going on. And he's, he's, he's actually quite vague about the, the, the retelling of it. And, and you'll see why here in a moment. About, and I'll talk about why he's actually doing this. But he does mention going to the third heaven. So in Paul's day, the, the idea of multiple heavens, and this is not just, this is uh, through all people in his time, the idea of multiple heaven, heavens, and there's usually three to seven heavens when they're talking about the heavens, is quite common in those days. But in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's usually referred to as, uh, usually referred to as there being three heavens. So the, the, the first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. So you can read about this in Acts 1, 9 through 10. It says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, two men stood by them in white robes. So this idea of heaven, the first heaven, is just the, the atmosphere around us. It's the clouds, it's the sky. They're gazing into heaven. They're gazing into the sky watching Jesus being lifted up. The second idea of heavens is the entire universe. You know, this is all the planets and the stars. Genesis 1.14 says, And God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So that's the second heaven, the planets, the stars. That's everything outside of our atmosphere. And then the third heaven is typically referring to where, where God and the angels live. Um, speaking of Jesus, this is what Peter said in 1 Peter 3.22. He says, He who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is the third heaven. It's where God is. It's clear that Paul is referring to this heaven. This is the third heaven. Paul is referring to being pulled up into heaven in this vision. And he doesn't know if he was in the body. He doesn't know if he was out of the body. But he got pulled up into heaven for this great revelation that he got. And it's, it's clear that he considered it an, an extraordinary experience. And probably a pretty unique experience. But it is interesting that he tells it in the third person. Because when you read the verses around this, it's kind of obvious. He gives plenty of hints that he's talking about himself. And I'll point those out as we go through them. But it, it's, it'd be strange for this whole letter, this whole section of this letter, for him to be boasting about vision and revelations, but boasting about somebody else. Because the whole point is about him boasting, but he's talking about someone else. Verse 1 clearly said he's going to boast about visions and revelation. 
But then he boasts about somebody else, or at least it seems that way. And then he's going to clearly uh, refer to himself personally multiple more times in this 10-verse passage. He keeps pointing to himself, except for here, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. So if it's referring to himself, why is he doing it in the third person? Now, this is one as I was studying it. Um, I found a pretty uh, uh, a concise uh, commentary that describes some possible options. So instead of trying to recount, I'm just going to read what they wrote because I think it makes sense. And this is from the New American Commentary. And it says, Paul, for the one option is Paul may have been falling back on the convention of pseudonymity. Pseudonymity? Pseudonymity? I think it's uh, being anonymous with a pseudonym. Maybe that's where the word comes from. Pseudonymity. Pseudo, pseudo, I think, is that right? Pseudonymity? Does anyone know how to pronounce that word? You know, the problem with pronouncing words is when I'm studying, I typically study in my head. I don't read it out loud. And it works fine in my head. I understand what I'm pronouncing in my head. Anyway, in Jewish tradition concerning visionary accounts, later rabbinic tradition considered this subject dangerous and forbade public discussion of it. And Paul's reserve may have been an early reflection of this attitude. So the first possibility is, because this is such a unique experience with speaking, uh, having a, a time with God in heaven, that this is kind of what they did back then. It was considered taboo to actually refer to yourself in the first person when talking about these kind of things. So that's one option. Second option, the use of the third person may derive from the very nature of the experience itself. Such an overwhelming event, he is not sure if it was in the body or out of the body, resulting in him observing himself undergoing the experience as kind of a spectator. So the other option is maybe when this happened, it was kind of like he was watching through a camera lens. He's not sure if it was in the body or out of the body because he watched it as a, as a visual representation instead of actually being in first person in his own body or spirit. And then the third option says it also may be attributable to his desire not to boast. <laughs> Only the greatest figures of Scripture were ever snatched up to the heavens. Paul has no interest in ranking himself with these saints. He simply wants to drive pompous rivals from the ranks of the Corinthians. He therefore avoids any egocentric form of expression since he is already acutely conscious of the foolishness of self-praise. Paul's reticence to refer to himself directly fits his ambivalence towards boasting in this section. He can boast about such a person in Christ, but not about himself. What happened to a man in Christ? The reference to the man in Christ may lead us back to, to 10.17, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God did not grant Paul this awesome experience of paradise because he was so special, but solely because of his relationship to Christ. Now, as I've read and studied this, I, I lean more towards this third option. Paul's worried about boasting, uh, particularly about this revelation. He's worried about boasting. He wants to make a point, but he's still careful that he's not, uh, his goal is not to get the, the Corinthians to go, oh, wait, you have better and supernatural credentials than these other apostles. We're going to put our eyes on you. Paul didn't want them to begin to worship him. They want, he wants to keep them worshiping God and having a, a, a devout relationship with God, a pure relationship with God, and not with all these other things. But regardless of his reasoning, I don't think Paul was unaware of the, the, just the awesomeness of the experience that he had, the uniqueness of his experience. But even in his foolish boasting, he's careful not to overstep. Paul didn't want them to accidentally start worshiping him instead of, instead of God, which was always his intent. And then he continues on in verses 3 through 4. I know that this man was caught up into paradise. This is another 
reference to heaven. This is actually the same way that Jesus used to refer to heaven, right? You'll be with me in paradise. He says, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. He reiterates, I don't know exactly how this happened. He says, but God knows. And then he says, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It seems like this was a pretty extraordinary visit. Paul heard stuff that he's not allowed to utter. He's not allowed to repeat. He's, he wasn't supposed to share it with other people. Now, I don't know if this is because it was just for him. This was a revelation that was particularly for him. Or if it was like uh, John in the book of Revelations when he's talking about the, the, the thunders, the seven thunders that he hears. And he's about to write it down. And, and what does God say? No, no, no. Don't write this one down. You're going to seal this one up. So it's not unheard of for God to give a revelation that you're not supposed to share with other people. But it, it may, like I said, also been that what was revealed was for Paul and Paul alone. Paul, as we've read in the beginning of this letter, this first part of his boasting, talked about what he went through. The shipwrecks, the beatings, the stonings, the being stabbed in the back by fellow Christians. His own countrymen wanted to kill him. The Romans didn't like him. He was under uh, uh, assault by robbers and the elements. It seems like everywhere he went, he was going through some stuff. Could very well be that, that this was, was God pulling him aside and say, look, you're going to go through some stuff, but I'm with you. And this was to encourage him to endure. Maybe that's what it is. Now, this is just speculation. I don't really know. It doesn't say what he was told. But we do know it was for him. And we do know that that of all the events in the book of Acts that describe supernatural things that happen with Paul, you know, visions, trances, all those things, none of them match up with this particular event. And it's probably because Paul didn't share it with anybody. This wasn't supposed to be recorded in the book of Acts as something that, that happened to him. He didn't share it. This was for him. Also note that he, he, he keeps using this word caught up. Like I said, this is to be snatched up. The, the point is, is it's not like Paul found the secret ingredients to make himself uh, worthy to go to heaven. It's not like Paul, um, you know, found the, the secret steps to ascend to heaven himself. The truth is, is that God reached down and pulled him up. This is also why Paul doesn't like boasting about it, because he, he recognizes he had nothing to do with it. This was God reaching down and pulling him up. This was everything to do with God and nothing to do with himself. And that makes it all the more foolish for him to boast about it, because it wasn't his accomplishment. The thing is, is when you, when you read Paul's letters, he never refers to himself as some great apostle. Matter of fact, the only time that he, that he really deals with his credentials as an apostle is when he's trying to refute false teachers coming in and they're being led away and distracted by the other, uh, by his, his flock is being distracted by these false teachers. The only time he really starts pushing his credentials is because he has to, to, to basically counteract what they're saying about him. He always refers to himself as just a man in Christ. And he understands that being used greatly by God has nothing to do with his own gifts and talents. Did you know that being used by God really only has two requirements? The first requirement to being used by God in a certain way is that that's God's plan for your life. And the second requirement is that when you get the call, you say yes. Really the only two requirements. To be used greatly by God is that that's what God wants for your life and that you say yes when the call comes. And I have a sneaking suspicion 
that our idea of being used greatly by God is quite different than God's idea of being used greatly by him. If God's call on your life was to reach one person, to reach one soul, to get one person saved, and you said yes, and that person came to know Jesus because you were obedient to the calling of God on your life, then you were used greatly by God. But what if the calling of your, your life was to reach tens of thousands of people for, for Jesus, but you only reach a hundred because you wanted to do things your own way because you didn't say yes or you just kind of said yes? That's uh, one of the biggest dangers in our country is that, that Christians kind of say yes. We become lukewarm instead of serving how we're supposed to serve. So the question is, the person that was supposed to reach tens of thousands, but he only reached a hundred, was he used greatly by God? I mean, he reached a hundred more souls than the one guy we just talked about. But he certainly wasn't, he wasn't living his life to the fullest that he was called to be used. I would say that the first one outdid the second. But the truth is, is the recognition that it really has little to do with us, but what God wants to use us for and just saying yes. If God wants to use you for something, he'll give you the strength to do it. He'll give you the resources to do it. He'll give you whatever you need to accomplish his purpose in your life. Amen. And in verse 5 through 6, he says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It seems like such a weird way for Paul to essentially be referring to his younger self, his 14-year-old-ago self. And even though he's made it clear over and over and over again that boasting is an act of foolishness, it's still clear to, that he's a little concerned with sharing this vision. And he doesn't describe it in any detail at all, right? He says, Dude went to heaven, in his body or not in his body, I'm not sure, and he heard stuff that he can't utter. This isn't a really great description of this vision in Revelation. But he's still acutely aware that it's not something that he should be boasting about, even in this utilitarian viewpoint of trying to get the Corinthians back to where they're supposed to be. He's, he's actually concerned with sharing the whole thing. So he defaults back to what he knows he can boast in, and that's his weaknesses, because when you're boasting in your weaknesses, you're actually boasting in what God's doing in your life. And the thing is, is this is a truly remarkable experience that Paul had. He really could have capitalized on what he had to really, to, if he wanted to take advantage of the Corinthians, he could have been sharing this from day one. They would have ate it up, and they would have been just eating out of his hands. They would have been following him around, he wouldn't have to worry about these false apostles coming in because his vision, his credentials are already way higher than theirs. But instead, Paul wisely takes a, a step back and understands this isn't something that really elevates him at all. Like we said already, what happened to him was because God wanted it to happen, not because of anything Paul did. And he made it clear that, the, that we shouldn't boast of these things, but he, he makes something, he says an interesting thing here which is also one of the reasons that points back that this person actually was him. He says, listen, I will only boast in my weakness, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. He points out that it's, it's not him lying about this stuff. He would be, this is just a, another a thing that points to me that says that this person that he's talking about actually was him. But he says, I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in or hears 
from me. The thing is, is that when Paul spoke to the Corinthians, they wanted, they, he wanted them to look at him, look at his life, look at his actions, look at the words he spoke, and judge those things and, and, and consider who he was based on those things. His credentials weren't in all the things that, and the supernatural stuff, his credentials were in the fact that he came in and he ministered the gospel to them and he led them to salvation and he lived the life that he, that he asked them to live. He wasn't doing something different. And his credentials, as he said earlier, his letter uh, of, of uh, approval was actually written on the hearts of the Corinthians. It was actually, they were his letter of approval because their lives had changed due to the, to the gospel that he had shared, due to his ministry. So that's what he wanted. He didn't want people to think more of him than he was. He just wanted to be viewed as a man in Christ that had, that had Jesus at the forefront of everything that he did. And then he continues on in verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. See, this is another thing here. Uh, the, the revelation these have, the surpassing, surpassing greatness of this revelation. Did, wasn't it another person that had this great revelation? It's just the way he was talking. I don't know. Like I said, we're not 100% sure why it was in the third person, but it seems clear that he was referring to himself. He says, The greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You know, the other thing that I think that Paul was, that Paul was being careful about boasting in his revelations because he's already dealing with some stuff to keep him from boasting in his revelations. To keep him from being conceited, he has this thorn in the flesh. See, Paul may have been given really unparalleled favor and an incredible experience with God, but it didn't shield him from what was going to happen in his life. It didn't shield him from the stuff that he was going to have to go through. Now, there's been some discussion over what this thorn in the flesh actually was for Paul. And there's some people think it's, it's some sort of sickness or disease, particularly of his eye. And the, where they get that from is in Galatians 4.15. He says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, many people say, well, that's because he must have had some sort of eye disease. That's why he said this. But truthfully, and, and I, I think uh, I can show that it's something else that Paul's talking about. But the, the whole eye thing, I think, was nothing more than, than going, man, I love you. I would give you my kidney if you needed it. Or, man, I would give you my left arm. It was just an expression of great devotion in the book of Galatians. He was just saying, I would have given, you loved me, and you would have given me anything. But I think that when we're going to, the best way to interpret the Bible is by using the Bible, understanding the Bible. So this idea of thorn in the flesh is actually used quite often in the Old Testament. Did you guys know that? This phrase is used multiple times in the Old Testament. So Numbers 33, 55 says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. So God commands Moses to drive out all the people in the land in Canaan. He destroy all their carved and molten images and demolish their pagan shrines. And what would happen if they didn't do that? They would become thorns in their side. Joshua 23, 13. Know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this ground around the Lord of your God has given you. 
So God had previously driven out the enemies for them um, but, uh, and given the Israelites the land. But now he's saying that uh, basically this was a warning for them not to assimilate into their culture, to allow their stuff to come into their culture. And what would happen if they did? They would become thorns in their eyes. And then finally, Judges 2.3. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And this was an angel of the Lord speaking to the Israelites, and they were asked not to make covenants with the people of the land that God had promised them, but they were to destroy the altars. And if they didn't, they would become thorns in their sides. This idea of, of being a thorn in the side, in every instance that I've read it, has to do with people. People. And if you know, if we, if we think about what Paul has already written in this letter, he had the, his own countrymen, the Jews, were out to get him. The Romans didn't like him. And he was even dealing with, with um, false brothers, false Christians who were stabbing him in the back as well. These, these people, I believe, were the thorns in Paul's side. Persecution was the thorn in Paul's side. And if you think about it, almost everything that he goes through, other than <laughs> probably the shipwrecks, which directly weren't persecution, but the reason why he was on, well, like, for instance, the reason why he gets shipwrecked on the way to Rome is because he was in jail, which was persecution. But almost everything that Paul deals with in his ministering of the gospel is because people are coming against him. They're the thorns in his side. And I don't think these false apostles were doing him any favors either. But that's, you know, when I, that, that's what I believe that Paul is talking about when the, the thorn in his side. And then in verses 8 through 9, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And where's, um, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Now, it's obvious that these thorns in his side, whatever they may be, were a hindrance to his ministry. It was causing him some problems. And that's actually why he referred to it, um, the, right before, he referred to it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. It was, it was hindering his ministry. So it says that he, he, he asks God, listen here, when you're going through something in your life, what's the first thing that you should do? Pray. Well, that's what Paul does. He gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. He says, God, remove this from me. And what does God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You know, the truth is, when you become a Christian, everything is not going to become perfect in your life. If you become a Christian, that doesn't mean that all your problems go away. Everything is gumdrops and lollipops from then on out. And matter of fact, I think that that's one of the worst uh, things that we can do when we're trying to win souls is to tell them that just, you know, just become a Christian and everything will be great because it won't. You're still going to go through. We live in a fallen world around broken people and bad stuff just happens. In addition to that, now you've got a devil who wants to get you. The truth is, is the devil's not after people that aren't following Jesus. He has no reason to be. But he's after Christians. You're going to deal with stuff in your life when you become a Christian that you never would have dealt with. Had you not become a Christian? The truth is, is that sometimes life is hard and we go through stuff. Sometimes the devil attacks us. Sometimes we do stupid and just make our own lives hard. But the reality is, is that there's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be persecution. 
if the world hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. But the thing is, is that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you have to endure, no matter what your suffering is, God will not leave you nor forsake you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, the truth is, is no matter how bad it gets, you only got to last through this time on earth, and then it's all over with. And then you get to spend eternity. And it's that grace, what God, what he has done for you in this life that helps you endure, that helps you get through, that gives you the hope to move on. And truthfully, God says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You'll be taken care of. And the thing is, is even if the trial doesn't end, much like Paul here, he's, he's asking for the trial to end. He's asking for this stuff to end. Paul's, and Jesus, God says, no, you're going to deal with it. And we know he does, right? Because ultimately, uh, Paul dies at the hands of the Romans. He, he dies with that thorn in the flesh <laughs> attacking him. This doesn't go away, but he, God was with him every step of the way, and he completed his purpose. But you know what? Anything that we endure is worth it. Paul knew this. This is why, do you remember Peter and the apostles that got drug away by, uh, drug away and that they were, they were beaten? They told, don't talk about this Jesus anymore, and then they beat him. And what did they do when they left? They rejoiced that they were, they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor by being beaten for Jesus Christ. They considered it worth it. The truth is, is we're going to face all kinds of things. And, and serving in the body of the Christ is hard sometimes. And it takes sacrifice. And sometimes you deal with stuff you don't want to deal with. But it's worth it. Paul certainly believed it was worth it. And I know I believe it's worth it. And God was willing to use Paul's weaknesses to demonstrate his power. Because in every area that Paul had a weakness, God stepped in. And it says right here, my power is made perfect in weakness. Because it shows God's power. If you're really, really good at something, and you do something great, you can say, no, that was me that did it. But if you're terrible at something and you're successful, it's God working in your life. It's his power being made perfect. And truthfully, I think it's a lot easier for God to use your weaknesses than it is for him to use your strengths. Because anytime God wants to use your strength, and let me speak for me, anytime God wants to use my strengths, I tend to get in the way. Because I know how it's done, and I can already do this thing on my own. And I, I typically, if I'm, you just mess things up. But God used the situation that Paul was in to strengthen him. You know, it's just like that idea of, of uh, uh, the, the trees that were in, in um, the biosphere too. Guess, I know I've told this story before, but one of the things that they had an issue with when they were growing trees in the biosphere is as things were going, uh, going on, the trees growing up, and then finally they came one day and all the trees were falling over because they had grown and they had gotten strong. They had all the water and everything they need, but the wind had never blown on them. They're in a big giant bubble, a big dome. The wind had never blown on them, so they never got strong. And then the weight of their own growth caused them to fall and break. It's true that trees that are grow on the side of a cliff, if you cut them down and use the wood, the wood is much stronger in those trees than those that have never faced any kind of wind blowing on them. Because sometimes it takes, it takes the wind blowing on us to strengthen us, to make us stronger. And that's where we get the expression, uh, uh, faith untested equals faith untrusted. But sometimes we have to go through stuff and God strengthens us. Now, I'm not saying that, that God causes those things. I don't believe that he does. 
We have an enemy. We have a broken world that we live in. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in our life. I don't, I don't think God made your car break down to teach you a lesson. I don't think God gave somebody cancer to teach them a lesson. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm vehemently opposed to that, and I think the Scripture supports that. But I think that he'll use those things to strengthen you. I think that he'll use stuff that happens in our life to help us get stronger so that we're able to, to be stronger even the next time. And that's why Paul said, I'll boast in my weaknesses and not in my strength. Because I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then we'll end here in verse 10. He says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul was willing to endure anything. He was willing to endure anything to bring glory to God. He didn't matter what it was. And it's because God's grace was enough for him. He would be content with whatever the world or Satan threw at him. It didn't matter. He was going to choose to be content and let God work through him. And the thing is, is that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how bad it gets, none of those things nullify the grace of God in your life. The thing is, is that God's worth it. No matter what we have to deal with, God is worth it. It's because, you know, it's not only worth it for us, which it is, but it's worth it for those who we're going to minister to through those circumstances. It's going to be worth it to those. Uh, have you ever noticed that when, when bad stuff is happening, sometimes you get put in contact with people that you never would have met otherwise? If you share the gospel with them, then not only was whatever you're going through worth it for you because God's grace is enough, but it's also worth it for them because they, they could potentially be introduced to the grace of God. You never know how God is going to use a situation to strengthen you or encourage somebody else. And the truth is, is that when we are weak, we're actually strong because that's where God comes in. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is one of the funniest misquoted verses that I know of. You guys know the song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. And what's he say? For when I am weak, he is strong. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> it doesn't say, when I am weak, he is strong. The Bible says, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's because, now, I understand the saying is still true. God is strong. But the idea is, is that, that in our weaknesses, God's strength is ever to shine through. When we are weak, we're actually strong, not because we're strong, but because God's strong, and he works through us. Amen? That is why God's power is perfected in our weakness. So church, as we close out today, let's, let's choose a, to be a people who are willing to endure anything, to allow God's strength to shine through and endure anything in order that God, in order that Christ would be glorified. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.